0: Open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5. Locate yourself in the text somewhere around verse 23, and bow your heads with me as I pray. Our Father, we're opening the Word of God together now because we want to hear from you. As we peer into your Word, Father, I pray your Spirit would peer into our hearts and that He would apply the truth of His Word to us. Please, O oh Lord, make our hearts soft to receive what you have for us this morning. Fill us with faith to believe your word in spite of our circumstances and to act upon it in faith in full confidence knowing that you honor those who honor your word. And so help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved. Just to kind of review and get ourselves thinking a little bit in the topic that will be before us this morning, let your eyes just go up a little bit to verse 18 of this fifth chapter and it's been a few weeks since I've reminded you of this and so it's appropriate to do so and that is that all that we're talking about and have been talking about is an outgrowth and overflow of the Spirit-filled life. Where Paul talks here in verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but be continually filled by the Spirit. And you'll remember back, I hope, a couple of months ago, I don't remember how many now, a few months ago, when we looked in detail at that passage and a number of sermons on what it meant to be filled by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to to transform His people. So as we peer into the Word together, in faith, the Spirit's going to change us. He's going to contradict things that we think are true, patterns that we've had in our lives that need to change. He's going to draw us to himself, and and it's through his word that he conforms us to the image of Christ and makes us more and more and more like Jesus Christ. So as we look, continue to look at the husband's responsibilities here, the role of the husband in marriage, in particular these truths that flow out of this chapter, but not this alone, but as we look at this and, and do so with eyes of faith, then we're going to become more like Christ, who is that, that great lover of the church. And so, as we look here together, it's a, it's a life that's called to be transformed by the Spirit, both husbands and wives. And the wife was, is given this command in verse 22 to, to be subject or to submit to their own husbands, right, as to the Lord. And that command is not subject to, it's not conditioned upon the the husband fulfilling his command down in verse 25 to love his wife. We talked about that. The ladies, in your role as a wife, you you are called to submit to your husbands, and, and he is your husband. But husbands, we can make it a lot easier on our wives if we will love them as Christ loves his church. And there needs to be change in marriages. All of our marriages need to change. None of us have arrived. We've all got room to grow. We've all got but things that we need to work on. Places where we're not like Christ. And we need to grow like Christ. But, but the change, gentlemen, has to begin with us. The change really begins with us. There is no secret... That women buy and read more books than men. You can check any of the, the uh, online services that track the the purchases of books, and women, by and far, buy and read way more books than men. It's also no secret that in the last 20 years or so, that there has been a plethora of books written on marriage. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who's buying those books. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. It is very, very obvious that women are the primary buyers and readers of marriage books. But no matter how many books they buy, no matter how many Bible studies they attend, The most reliable predictor of the state of a woman's marriage is her husband's engagement and pursuit of his role as the leader of his home. That is the best predictor. That's why the management of the home, which begins with the state of a man's marriage, is a non-negotiable qualification for leadership among the people of God. The elders must be ones who manage their household well. And it begins with their marriages. We're looking here at biblical authority and submission, the role of a husband. Fourteen characteristics of a husband's authority. Fourteen characteristics of a husband's authority so that we might understand Appreciate and exercise the authority that we have in a Christ honoring way in our homes and in our marriages. We began men by looking at the first characteristic, which was that a husband's authority is unavoidable. The husband's authority is unavoidable. Verse 23 here For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The husband is the head of the wife. It's a statement of reality. Headship equating with authority. The husband's authority is an unavoidable reality, men. Secondly, and last week, we looked at the next characteristic, which was that a husband's authority is covenantal. The husband's authority is covenantal. And we noted last week, that when a particular man assumes the responsibilities of the leadership authority over a particular woman, it is brought about by the exchange of vows. They exchange wedding vows with one another, pledging their love and their loyalty, their mutual respect and responsibilities to one another in the covenant of marriage. A man arrives at a position of authority over a particular woman via the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage. And that takes us to the third characteristic, which I want to look at with you this morning. The third characteristic, a husband's authority is reflective. A husband's authority is Reflective. Again, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also, as Christ also, is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice in both cases that Christ is the, is the comparative point, Right? as Christ also, as Christ also. In other words, that the authority that we bear as husbands in marriage is a reflective authority. It's a reflection of Christ's authority. Now, we have established over these last couple of weeks that a husband has been designated by God with authority, and the authority is a stewardship. It's a considerable authority, to be sure. But it's a stewardship authority, and it's an authority that relates to his wife and his home. What I want to do this morning is begin to look at the how we exercise that authority. How does a husband exercise that authority if it is to be done just as Christ does? In other words, Christ is the the pattern, the image, and we are to be reflective of that and to the extent that we reflect it well then we love well and to the extent that we don't reflect it well then we don't love well and we don't exercise our authority well so just to get our brains thinking here a little bit about this how does Christ how does Christ exert his authority over the church if we're to do it just as Christ then how does Christ do it what is the standard Well, here's a few. Just some things to think about. Christ is not harsh with his church. Christ is not harsh with his church. Just the opposite. He is gentle. He says in Matthew 11 and verse 29: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Christ is not harsh with his church, he is gentle. Christ is not impatient with his church. Christ is not impatient with his church. Christ does not use his authority for his own benefit at the expense of his church. Christ does not use his authority for his own benefit at the expense of the church. Christ is approachable in the exercise of his authority. He is long suffering. He is kind. He is gracious. And he is merciful. Christ serves his bride, the church, sacrificially. He serves his bride sacrificially. Christ seeks the best for his bride, and he loves her unconditionally. He seeks the best for his bride, and he, and he loves her unconditionally. These are just a few, just a few of the ways that Christ. Exercises a loving authority over the church that, that we as husbands are, are called to reflect. Unless you are spiritually dull of heart, gentlemen, then you can readily recognize that we're not making it. That we fall, we fall short. All of us fall short. And that reality can be overwhelming for a man. The reality of, of how far we are can be overwhelming. It, it, can, it can be defeating to us. And so this morning, I, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, oh, what I don't want to give is a bunch more law. So weight is heavy. And, and, and a man, when he's honest, will admit that it's heavy and will admit that he falls short. We need a path of escape. So here's what I want to do as we're, as we're getting started on all of this here is, is to just take a little bit of time and talk about change, gentlemen. There's been enough material communicated over the last couple of weeks for for any and all of us to recognize, wow, there's places we have got to change. So how do we change? How do we change in a place, in an area where we are falling short? Before the Lord, how do I change? Let's take a look. It begins here. It begins by recognizing and admitting we have a problem. It's as simple as that. It, it, It begins by recognizing and admitting that we're falling short in a particular area. Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29 and verse 1 is... Appropriate, I think, to this. Proverbs 29 and verse 1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. In other words, to to listen to sermon after sermon or message after message or to to read a book on marriage and to refuse to think about where and how we've got to change is a dangerous path to be on. It's to set ourselves in opposition to God. And so the best thing to do, the path of life, gentlemen, ladies, ladies, In those areas where you know you need to change. So Christians, the path of life is to recognize and admit there is a there is a problem here and the and something has to be done. We can't just keep ignoring it, pushing it away. We must ask God for help. We must ask God for help. I'm reminded of the the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 and verse 13 who is standing there at a distance beating his breast, right? And he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's to call out to God. It's to recognize that and believe that God can and will help us if we will but call out to him. We need to call out to God. Ask him for help. third, and this is probably one of the more difficult, is that we need to identify and analyze the motives behind our actions or inactions. It's not just enough to recognize the problem. We need to recognize what is the motive that is driving this problem. Why is it we do what we do or don't do what we know we should do? Why? This is where a trusted Christian brother or, or sister, ladies, can, can sometimes be helpful. As iron sharpens iron, right? So one man sharpens another, Proverbs 27 and 17. Just to identify, to, to ask someone to ask you the hard questions. To identify and analyze the motive. Why do we do what we do? Why don't we do what we know we should do? What is it we want? What is it we're trying to avoid? And once we've got a a, a fix on that, once we've got an idea on that, we need to repent. We need to repent of the motives and behaviors. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll direct you there. 2 Corinthians 7 verses 8 and following. Paul's writing here to the church at Corinth, to whom he had written a very, very difficult letter, a buking letter, and it tore him, out to, tore him up to write that letter. He didn't, he didn't enjoy that in any way, but, but God used the letter to bring about repentance in that church. And Paul's rejoicing in that. And in the process of doing that, he identifies something I think that is very important for us, very instructive for us in terms of change. And he says, verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. In other words, I I did not want to send this. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I rejoice now that you were made sorrowful, but not Or excuse me, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What's the point? Here's the point. We can be really sorrowful for the pain we have caused ourselves by falling down as a husband, by, by, by our failures as a husband. We, we can look on our home and see the pain that it has brought. But that kind of sorrow will not produce lasting change. The kind of sorrow that produces lasting change is the kind of sorrow that understands that we have sinned first and foremost against God. And then yes, our sin has spilled over onto others, our wives and our children and, and even ourselves and others. But the first and foremost, and our failure to, to exercise our authority in a reflective way as Christ exercises His, has brought pain, grief and shame upon Christ. We then need to confess that reality. We need to confess to God, and then we need to confess to our wives and to our children and to seek their forgiveness, to seek their forgiveness. Not, will you forgive me? I have not been the kind of husband I should be. No, we need to be specific. Will you forgive me in these, in these areas? Because this is how I have failed. James says in James 4.6 that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, guys, when we humble our heart and confess to God, to our wives, to our children, and to perhaps others as need be, That is the channel from which the grace of God flows to us. It opens up the grace of God to flow to us. And as that grace of God flows to us, we can begin to replace those sinful behaviors with godly ones. Right? Remember Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul writing there to the, to the Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, in verse 22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God is being created in righteousness, in holiness of the truth, and then he goes on to make it specific. If, if, if lying is what's afflicting you, then you need to put off the lying and replace it with truth-telling. We can't just stop something. We need to replace it with something else. We need to replace our lack of biblical leadership and authority with biblical leadership and authority. Spend time with Christ in the Scriptures, gentlemen. Spend time with Christ in the Scriptures. This will renew your heart and your mind and and give you both the wisdom of God and, amazingly, as time spent, it will change you into the image of Christ. Mark it down and look it up on your own. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Paul's speaking there about how when Moses used to be in the presence of God, his face would shine and he had to put a veil over it. In other words, it showed that he'd been in the presence of God. And so he says in verse 18 there of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, So when we spend time in the presence of Christ and his word, we will show it as well. It will transform us. We cannot lead. We will not lead. As we should. Reflective of Christ. Absent subfi- sufficient time spent in his word. It's just not going to happen. It's hard. It's hard. I, so many good intentions. So many starts that fall. Enlist some help of friends. Enlist the prayer support of friends. Pull together, gentlemen, a guy or two that know you well and, and that will pray with you on these matters. Right? James 5.16, the, 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 uh, the effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Get some guys to pray for you. As you work through these things. Engage in Christian worship and fellowship. This is all part of the process of change. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, be there among the people of God. don't miss the fellowship of God's people the strength of the wolf is the pack strength of the wolf is the pack lone wolves don't do well we need the fellowship men and finally actively seek to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ It's part of that transformation process. Find a place to serve. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 45, right? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many, if we are to be changed in the image of Christ, we must serve. We must serve. We need to develop a pattern of Servanthood. Is all part of what it means for a husband's authority to be reflective. Fourth. Fourth. A husband's authority is primary. A husband's authority is primary. Verse 31, Ephesians 5. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife And the two shall become one flesh. Verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. The one flesh relationship. Last week we looked at the covenantal nature of authority, right? And we noted that there in the exchange of the wedding vows, it is the man who presents his vows first. He initiates And the woman's vows are in response to the man's vows. And we recognize that implicit in that covenantal relationship is that the husband bears ultimate responsibility for the state of his marriage. He is the one called by God to initiate the relationship. And the wife is called to respond to his initiation. That makes his role in the relationship primary. Primary. In other words, there would be no marriage if the man fails to initiate. It would be horrible. Can you imagine? Everybody's sitting here. Bride comes down the aisle. You get to the place where the vows, and the man won't say a word. No marriage. There'll be no marriage. The reality of the man's initiation and the wife's response to that initiation, I think, is illustrated in the process of conception and birth. In other words, this truth is woven into the human condition. The man gives... The woman receives. And then the woman gives back, as it were, through the birth of the child. That's exactly the way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 12. The man initiates. The woman responds. There's a partnership here, to be sure. And it's a partnership of equality in their humanity. In other words, both of them are are equally Um, part of the, 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 the command to be fruitful and multiply, right? There are essential parts of it. There's an equality there in it, but at the same time, there's an inequality of roles. It illustrates the reality of marriage. In marriage, in the covenant of marriage, they become one flesh. We share a common outcome. But the husband's authority and his leadership are primary. They're primary. Now, saying that a husband's authority and leadership is primary doesn't mean that the wife is unnecessary to the relationship in the same way that a wife is necessary for children. But what it does mean is that in the final analysis... The husband is responsible for the direction of his home. He's responsible for the direction of his home. Primary. Now men, and particularly those unmarried men here, do not become smug with the lofty position that God has assigned to you. For as Jesus said, "Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more." Luke 12 verse 48. In other words, gentlemen, we will most assuredly give an account before the Lord some day for the state of our marriage. How did we lead in our homes? All right, let's take a look at an illustration here of the primacy of the husband's authority. How does that work out in a one flesh relationship? So let me paint you a scenario and, and, and kind of work through with you how to make a decision. Okay? How do we make a decision in light of these realities of authority and submission and leadership and responsibility and all those kinds of things, okay? Okay. So here's my scenario to to take a look at here for just a couple of minutes. Should we buy a new car, or should we keep and repair the old one? I think every single marriage has been faced with that decision. Do we buy a new car, or do we keep and repair the old car, fix up the old clunker, right? So how do we go about doing that? How does that decision get made that reflects the realities of the roles of men and women? So let me suggest it to you this way. Begin with a recognition that you are one flesh and that the decision affects both of you and that you both have an equal state in the outcome. In other words, this is a partnership in this decision in which you act as a couple and you are both bought into the outcome of this decision. It's not her decision, it's not his decision, it's our decision. It's our decision. And we will live with the consequences of this decision. Secondly, is, gentlemen, to recognize that your wife is your God-given helper. And so do not ignore her. Right? Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 I will make a helper corresponding to him. In other words, that this woman is a gift of God to you. She is your helper. She, uh, you need to, to listen to her and not ignore her, not shut her off. Third, recognize that your wife may be your better in this particular area. In other words, when it comes to managing money and finances and budgeting, she may be better at it than you are. I think about Proverbs 31, 26 and 27, where it talks about the excellent wife, right? That she's she's good at managing business affairs. So your wife may be better than you at this. Observation here, by the way. Just when it comes to debt accumulation, I just kind of throw this in. Women tend to accumulate debt in small increments. Men tend to indebt their homes in large slugs, like big screen TVs. Right? So a man will fight his wife over a $15 purchase and think nothing of a $1,000 purchase because we need it. (laughs) So just recognize that you probably, if you find yourself, you can identify with this, you probably need some balance here, gentlemen, okay? So, your wife may be your better in this area. And since she is your helper, don't ignore her. Fourth, your wife loves you. Your wife loves you. Repeat that. My wife loves me. She loves me and she is committed to me. She is not my adversary. She is not the the wall that I need to climb over or get around or knock down in order to get to what I really want to do. Okay. She loves you and she is committed to you. I don't know, you decide, gentlemen, is not a valid approach. Okay? It it is a decision. It's just a wimpy decision. It's a a non-masculine decision. Okay? I, I don't know. You decide. You have to. You have to. Okay, So you've gone through the process, you've done whatever calculations you do in this process here, and you've prayed about it, and you've talked about it, and you've got counsel on it, whatever, whatever the process that you employ in, the, in making this decision or any other decision, and you arrive at an impasse. In other words, that you, wanted, you have, think one thing is the right thing to do, and she thinks another thing is the right thing to do, then what do you do? You have to make a decision, gentlemen. You have to make a decision. Your decision might be, since we are not in unity on this, we need to table this decision and think about it some more. That is a perfectly valid decision. Or you may decide that we're going to move forward and get a new car or fix up the old car or get rid of the car and Uber around town, (laughs) whatever decision you make. But ultimately, you have to make the decision. You have to make it. And wives, it's disrespectful when he makes the decision. Let me just throw this in here. When he makes the decision and it turns out to be a disaster for you to say, I told you so. Okay? That's exceedingly disrespectful and unhelpful. Conversely, gentlemen, it is exceedingly unmanlike. That if you listen to the counsel and heed the counsel of your wife and you make a decision based on her counsel and it doesn't turn out well to say, I shouldn't have listened to you. Okay? So far, so good. Your husband's authority is the primary authority. The buck stops there, gentlemen. The buck stops there. But do not disregard this good gift of God. Husband's authority is primary fifth. Fifth characteristic. Fifth characteristic. And I'm only going to really just kind of introduce this this morning. It's too big to cover, but I want to get it out onto the table. A husband's authority is loving. Okay? A husband's authority is loving. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Couldn't be any clearer than that. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we need to lay a foundation for this. We need to lay a foundation for this because there is a lot of confusion about what it means to love your wife. So what I want to do this morning, just the time that's left, is lay a a theological foundation underneath this command. Okay? We're going to do that by stepping back and reflecting upon the loving relationships within the Trinity, within the Godhead, right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. That's a theological statement about Trinitarian love. And as we lay the foundation here, I, I want to direct you to what I think is one of the most helpful books that I have read in a very long time. And it's called Delighting in the Trinity by the author Michael Reeves. There's a, I have a short list of books that I would recommend to people. That's one of them. And the beauty is it's a short book on a short list. Okay? I have long books on my short list. This is a short book on a short list. And it has pictures. Okay, So, guys, you're in great shape. It's got pictures. Okay? I really commend it. Really, really commend it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes the following. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Right? Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. In other words, this draws us into the Godhead. And it is the headship and authority structure of the Godhead which is the channel through which the love of God flows. And this is huge. So let me just quickly sketch it out for you. First, the Father is the head and lover of the Son. The Father, God the Father, is the head and lover of the Son, right? And we just read that, right? God is the head of Christ. He is the head and lover of the Son. Now the Son certainly loves the Father, but it is Christ the Son who is referred to as the Beloved. Okay, look back here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. The Father is not referred to as the Beloved. It is the Son who is referred to as the Beloved. All right, verse 6, to the praise and the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved go back to Luke chapter 3 verse 22 Luke 3:22 there at the baptism verse 22 Luke 3 and the holy spirit descended upon him that is the son christ in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven you are my beloved son in you i am well pleased Okay? The father is the head and lover of the son. The son is the beloved. In other words, the father is the initiator. The son is the responder. Okay? That's the key point. The father is the initiator. The son is the responder. Secondly. Secondly. The Son is the head and lover of the church. The Son is the head and lover of the church. Jesus says in John 15, 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. That makes the Son the head and lover of the church. I'll quote Reeves here. He writes, and I quote, This means that Christ loves the church first and foremost. His love is not a response given only when the church first loves Him. His love comes first, and we only love Him because He first loves us. 1 John 4.19, right? We love because He first loved us. So the Son is the head and lover of the church. In other words, Christ is the lover, the church is the beloved. And notice how many times beloved is used in the New Testament in reference to the church. We are the beloved of Christ. He is the initiator. We are the responders. Okay, so you see it's starting to set up, right? Father is the or head and lover. He's the initiator. Christ is the responder. Christ is the head and lover of the church. He is the initiator. The church is the responder. Now, Here in Ephesians 5. In marriage, the husband is the head and lover of his wife. She is the beloved. And he is called to model his love for her after Christ's love for the church. Right? Verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. This means that like the church... She is not called to earn his love, but, and again I'll quote Reeves here, but can enjoy it as something that is lavished upon her freely, unconditionally, and maximally. Notice in verse 33, when Paul's summing it all up here, he says, Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, and the wife is to see to it that she loves her husband. No, it doesn't say that, does it? She is to respect him. Okay? Why doesn't Paul command her to love him? Because this is a passage about headship. And the channel that love flows in headship. And so the wife is the responder. In other words, he is to love her, and as he loves her, she will respond to that love. That's how God has wired her. She doesn't have to earn it. Just like we don't have to earn the love of Christ. He initiates. So do you see the progression? Father is head and lover of the church. He initiates. Uh, excuse me, father is the head and lover of Christ. He initiates, Christ responds. Christ is the head and lover of the church. Christ initiates, the church responds. The husband is the head and lover of his wife, the husband initiates; the wife responds. Did I say that right? Good. Good. So when you put it all together, you put it all together. Again, I will quote Michael Reeves. He says, "Quote for eternity, the Father so loves the Son that He excites the Son's eternal love in response." Christ so loves the church that he excites our love in response. The husband so loves his wife that he excites her to love him back. Such is the spreading goodness that rolls out from the very being of this God. It is so beautiful. So beautiful. Gentlemen, we have the pattern. We have the pattern. It is God Himself. It is God Himself. This is the theological basis. This is the template from which the command here in verse 25 to love your wives springs. Next week. I want to come back to this statement to love your wife with this pre understanding, this theological foundation underneath it. And I want to talk about the practical love, gentlemen, of a woman, how to love your wife. And I will be practical, I promise you. But I bet I will shock you. And I think I'll shock your wives too. Because it may not be exactly how they think they want to be loved. Okay, a little heads up. A little heads up. Let's pray. Our Father, just as we close out our time, we've talked about a lot of things. There's just a... There's just a lot rattling around, racing around in our hearts and minds. And I pray your spirit would really settle it down in for us. Father, as men to just reflect upon the reality of the Godhead as our as our template, as our model of headship and love. Who initiates, who responds? How the love of Christ is not something we earn. And how our wives should not have to to wonder about our love for them. It's nothing that they must earn. We're called to initiate that reality. They will find their security in it. So help us. We love ourselves so, so much. And and we need to love ourselves a, a whole lot less. For the ladies here, Father, may you help them to, to find security in their husband's love? For the young people, Father, who are not married and perhaps are of coming of age to think about it, or maybe they're just really young and it's a long way off, but there's just some important stuff here. Help us, Father to hear and heed your word for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, beloved. We're, sometimes I feel like I'm running a hundred-yard dash in the beach sand, but uh, we are making forward progress, and at least in my mind, it all ties together, okay? So, so come on back next week, and we're going to continue to explore this topic, all right? God bless you.